0: find 1 Kings and chapter 17. Uh, tonight is the fifth talk on um, Elijah. 1 Kings 17. We're going to be reading from verse 7 tonight, so just shove your finger onto verse 7. And uh, do you remember last time we, uh, we left Elijah at Brook Cherith and we saw the the meaning of the word Cherith in the Hebrew, the idea of a cutting, uh, a, you know, a trench where you bury someone, you know, all to do with death and and uh, we raised the question, didn't we, in the talk before last that, uh, you know, Ahab, he, uh, Elijah came to Ahab and he declared the prophetic word and we said, oh, you know, now Elijah's ministry has started and you remember I said, or oh, has it? And, uh, you know, we're sort of seeing Elijah now going a route other than the one that you might have uh, expected. So we're seeing him at Brook Cherith, and there he is, you know, (laughs) dying to himself, because that was what it was all about. The time had come to say, you know, for the Lord to say to Elijah, "Okay, right, now we're going to get going, but you've got to move over, Elijah. I've got to get you out of the way. Hide yourself. And uh, we were seeing the way that he was fed by the ravens and that the ravens uh, to a Jew ceremonially in the Mosaic law were unclean. They represented sin, they represented evil and of course part of God really dealing with us, bringing us into death is is really showing us what our sin actually is, really showing us how sinful we are and of course the ravens are feeding Elijah and and food strengthens you and that in actual fact the deeper the conviction of sin that we experience before God. Assuming that we respond to that in the right way, in repentance, no, he's just getting into despair and doing a big downer on yourself, but the more we become aware of our own sin and in really turning to the Lord in repentance of it, then the more we see of our sin, the more we encounter His grace, His mercy. In fact, the more we encounter Him. It's a real Romans 8.28 situation. In everything, God works together for good and even as God really takes us apart really shows us the extent of our sinfulness even that God uses to strengthen us as we realize what we are more and more we begin to realize what the Lord is as well and uh, you know so there's there's Elijah sort of like gaily dying to himself one of the um the pictures that you know, I used in my own mind thinking about this in, you know, in uh, some sort of very tough years that the Lord put me through, uh, it was rather like um, you know, I was a river or a canal and, uh, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit was like one of these dredgers. I don't know if you've ever seen them, they're machines, they go along the side of the river bank and they sort of, you know, they've got a thing that goes in and it just drags out everything at the bottom of the river and you know, part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a dredger and you know he dredges out what's inside of us and uh, you know sort of like me being me for a very long time I was exhausting myself running up and down along the bank of my river trying to throw all the rubbish back in that the Lord was dragging out before anyone else saw it you know even at that point as God was showing me just how sinful I was, still one of my main concerns, I wanted to get it right with God, I was repenting of it, but still one of my main concerns was what other people were thinking. You know, crazy, That that is the deception of, of our own hearts, and, and so here's Elijah, Brooke Cherith, a real death to self, the ravens feeding him, he's really coming to terms, he's really being shown the extent of his own sinfulness and you remember we looked at for instance Isaiah who got, you know rather than woe is everyone else, Isaiah came to the point of woe is me. So anyway there he is and uh, we'll pick the story up from verse 7. Now look at this, uh, we'll read uh, from 7 down to verse 9. After a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Let's just concentrate on verse 7 to begin with. And After a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Now then, have got a guidance thing here. We're going to be seeing various things about guidance. There's something important here. Even when God's provision for Elijah ran out... He still waited by the brook. I.e. Elijah stayed in the last place that God had guided him until fresh guidance came. Even though he was now in a life-threatening situation. I mean, the brook has dried up. Presumably the ravens have stopped coming as well. But the point is the brook here dries up. And you can only survive two or three days without water. So the point is, Elijah stays there. He's been led to brook Cherith. But now, even though the provision has run out, he stays there in the last place he was guided to until fresh guidance came. And it, you know, in this instance, he was now actually getting thirsty and hungry. It was a, a dodgy situation, and, and, and he's now put on what I call an involuntary fast, okay? It wasn't a voluntary one, it's an involuntary one. There he is, suddenly stuck. He's been getting the food from the ravens, the water from the brook, bang. Suddenly, it's all gone, but nevertheless, he remains there, because that was the last place God guided him to. And as we're going to see, he didn't make any changes at all, until he got fresh guidance. Now, the principle, uh, one of the various principles we're going to be seeing about guidance in this series, here is another one, and it's the principle which I call the stay-as-you-are principle. Now, if you underline that in your minds, the stay-as-you-are principle, you'll understand a great deal about guidance. And it basically boils down to this. Whatever situation you are in now, change nothing unless you know that that change has been inaugurated by the Lord. I'll say that again. Whatever situation you're in now, make no changes Unless you know clearly that it is the Lord who is indicating that a change is needed. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'll actually show you where Paul outlines this principle. And it applies through every area of life in regards to guidance. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, (coughs) Uh, you'll find here that he's relating it largely to, you know, sort of things like, you know, singleness and marriage, etc, etc. But I think you'll see the the actual principle. 1 Corinthians 7, and we're going to start reading from verse 17. Uh, Up until now, he's been dealing with marriage. Should I get married? Shouldn't I? Blah, blah, blah. Now then, (laughs) 1 Corinthians 7, we'll start reading from verse 17. Uh, Keep your eyes open for the principle, the stay-as-you-are principle. He says, Only let everyone lead the life which the Lord had assigned to him and in which the Lord has called him this is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Everyone should remain in the state in which he was called were you a slave when you were called never mind but if you can gain your freedom avow yourself of the opportunity for he was called in the lord as a slave is a freedman of the lord likewise he was he who was free when called is a slave of christ you were brought with a price so do not become slaves of men so brethren in whatever state each was called there, let him remain with God. And he carries on and he, you know, applies it to marriage, etc., etc. But can you see the basic thing that Paul is saying there? He's saying whatever state you were in, whatever your circumstances were when you got saved, i.e. when you were called, don't make any changes to it. All right? So what he's saying is keep the status quo as the norm. All right? Uh, Now, I'll be back to that in one second. We must immediately remind ourselves at this point, though, that the main channel of guidance is the Bible. Remember, we saw a couple of talks ago that when it comes to guidance, you've got two types. There's the guidance that is covered by the Bible, you know, sort of like, for instance, what should you do about this, that and the other there in black and white. Should I get baptized? Well, the Bible says you should. No guidance needed there. And then you get revelational guidance. Uh, you know, for instance the Bible can tell you um, you know, kind of what job you can or sorry, the Bible can tell you um, that you've got to marry a Christian, but it can't tell you which one. So we've got that area as well. Now just go to Psalm 119 and just re-underline at this point the importance of the Bible being the mainstay of guidance. One, sorry, Psalm 119 and verse 105. It's, it's the longest psalm. Psalm 119 and verse 105. Just look at what it says here Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And what you've basically got there is that in the olden days, you were out in the dark, you needed to know where you were going. You know, if you, you were know, walking across a mountainous territory, you needed to know if the next step was, you know, a great big cavern or something, and you'd fall to your death. So you always carried a lantern. But the point is, that lantern only shone light sufficient for the next step. It wasn't like car headlights that show you half a mile away. You carried a lantern, and it shed light on your next step, and that was all you knew, your next step. So you took that step but as you moved into that step the light was then shining on your next step can you see and that's the point with guidance it's primarily through the Bible and it's one step at a time alright but the principle that we're seeing from Paul here is basically remain as you are don't be hasty to make any changes at all if changes are needed the Lord will show you but from your point of view basically don't go making any changes unless you know for sure that the Lord is leading you to. Now to try and you know sort of bring in an example of this, let's take jobs alright, you know the whole area of employment now there are several things that we can know about this whole area of a Christian working alright from the Bible alright, there are three basic things that we can know. The first thing we can know that we ought to be employed. We ought to be doing a job. Uh, now, let me say that uh, retirement is okay. It's no problem if you've retired. That's that's no problem. That's no problem. You know, you've you've done your stint then. Okay. Uh, let me say as well that housewife is a job as well. In fact, the Bible places the job of housewife and mother very high in the kind of employment thing. Uh, Just go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and let's actually see this stated baldly by Paul. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10 (coughs) And Paul says this For even when we were with you we gave you this command If anyone will not work let him not eat. So therefore We ought to be employed. That is guidance. Unarguable. So, if someone is unemployed, then guidance for them is to seek employment. Alright? That much you can know from the Bible. Now then, the second thing you can know is that um, whatever employment then you may seek, if you're unemployed, uh, it mustn't be dishonourable or sinful employment like there are jobs that a Christian is not free to do alright for instance um, you would not apply for a job as a stripper you see what I mean that is a dishonourable occupation alright I I mean you wouldn't you know sort of like going to the bank robbery business you know sort of well you know how do you earn your crust oh I rob banks the hours are quite good. That would be dishonourable, sinful employment. So obviously that would be out. Uh, you know, I mean you wouldn't sort of like set up in business as a hitman or something like that. So obviously employment has got to be honourable and, uh, you know, not sinful okay. Uh, so that's the second thing we can know about work. You ought to be working uh, but secondly you ought to be working in a job that is a legitimate job. So if you're unemployed you know that you've got to be seeking employment uh, but it must be honorable employment that you seek. And then the third thing we can know from the Bible in regards to our work is that we must do our job to the best of our ability. That's, you know, you do your job as best as you can. Now that's, that's all straightforward from the Bible but the thing that I want to home in on here is the situation of someone who is thinking about changing jobs A Christian who is thinking about, well, I'm doing this job, and the job I've got is perfectly legitimate. Should I change jobs? Now, can you see Bible verses can't help you out there, can they? It's revelational guidance. You can't turn up a chapter and verse, all right? So then, here we've got a Christian who's doing a particular job, and uh, he's either thinking of changing job or a situation has come upon him where there's another job available for him if he wants, alright? So, what, what does this mean for him? Now, how do we apply this stage, you are principally in a situation like that? Simply this, remain, that Christian should remain in their current employment and do nothing about changing it until they are pretty sure that the Lord is leading them to do so. you see the point? For instance, if someone thought, oh well I don't like this job, oh yeah, I'll go and get another one. That would be a silly thing to do. That would be changing something merely on a whim. If you're in current employment, then anything that is suggesting that a change of employment might be right, the answer to this is remain exactly as you are until you're pretty sure that it's the Lord who's leading you to make the change, rather than it merely being a whim. So we aren't saying never make changes. Of course we're not saying that, because the Lord changes our situation all the time. But what we are saying is that when it comes to making a change of any kind, the burden of proof is on the idea of making the change. I.e., whatever situation you're in, It seems, maybe, that an idea is coming along to make a change. What you've got to do is you've got to say the burden of proof is on the change itself. So you say, I'm going to stay exactly as I am, and I'm going to give my current situation the benefit of the doubt. I'm not going to give it to the change. Can you see what I mean? You stay as you are until you're pretty sure that the Lord is leading you to do that. It's a safety check. And if this stay-as-you-are principle wasn't built into the Bible, then what we'd find is that we could end up all over the place merely on what are wins. You see, especially when, you know, you come to realize that the law does lead us subjectively. That is absolutely true. But then the great danger is that every time we get, oh, you know, I really have a feeling about this, that, and the other, we think, oh, this must be the, you know, the law speaking. And my goodness, you'd spend your whole life flying all over the place, changing this, changing that, and then, you know, changing it back again, because then the laws leak, Can you see, and it will be absolute chaos. So the principle is, make no changes of any kind to anything, until you know beyond reasonable doubt that the Lord is leading you to. For instance, I mean, if someone gets converted, all right, they become a Christian, they're a stripper, well, it's obvious from the Bible they've got to change jobs there and then, isn't it? Obviously, that you can't do that, that's naughty. You know, but say you get converted, you're a bank manager or something, or a bricklayer, and after a while you think, oh, I feel that the Lord might be moving me onto something else. Now, he might be, he might be, But don't make any changes, stay a bricklayer or a bank manager until you're sure, beyond reasonable doubt, that it's God leading you to. And uh, it keeps us stable. And of course the important thing is that if you feel that any guidance coming through to make changes, make sure that you share it with other people so that they can be praying about it, they can advise you, they can test it. So can you see the basic stay-as-you-are principle? Don't make changes quickly. You know, if you think God is leading in regards to something, you can afford to take your time and really test it. There is no hurry at all. Now, Elijah here, we see the situation that he's in, how he applies that principle. I mean, he's seen God's provision dry up. You know, the ravens aren't coming. The brook is dry. Now, he probably had an inclination to hightail it somewhere else he'd have known that he was now in danger in the middle of the desert, no water. Elijah knew that his situation had suddenly become really dodgy and it was very tempting for him to make a change. Oh, I'll go somewhere else then. But he knew that God had led him to Cherith and therefore (coughs) he knew that he had to stay in there, to stay in the situation in which God last led him and to hang in there making no changes until the Lord was really making it clear to him. Now there's something else about this situation as well because remember he's been led by God. Now often we sort of feel that if God's leading you everything's going to go straightforwardly. Now let me tell you that you don't have to read much of the Bible to discover that that is an absolutely unbiblical idea. You often find that when the people in the Bible start responding to God's leading that's when everything starts going wrong not necessarily going right. It all starts to seemingly go wrong. Now the point is, while Elijah was kind of sitting there with the brook dried up and the raven's not coming anymore, he had a chance to do something that was tremendously valuable. He had a chance to completely re-evaluate his situation. Like he'd have been thinking, right, okay, here I am. I'm sitting by a brook in the middle of the desert, but the brook has dried up. Now I'm here because I really believe that God led me here and uh, it seems that he did because there was water and the ravens were feeding me but now all that's gone. Now it's going to start making Elijah think I wonder could I have got it wrong and it is always tremendously valuable for us to be open to the fact at any time that we might be wrong when it comes to guidance. So the point is Elijah is completely reevaluating his guidance. Now the way it works is this. If the Lord is guiding you, your faith will hold. If the Lord isn't guiding you, then your faith won't hold because he won't be providing it. You see what I mean? And it's very easy to launch out really sincerely believing that God has led you and you've really got faith. But then as it gets tougher and tougher and tougher, you suddenly realise that you haven't got any faith at all and that you never did have it was mere wishful thinking and so a difficult situation makes you reevaluate and you think oh goodness no I was wrong let's change course here and now but on the other hand if God is leading you then the harder it gets the more you reevaluate your faith the more you're thrown on the Lord the more you depend on him the more you realize it's impossible and the more faith actually grows you see what I mean? So that's one, you know, another of the reasons why it's so important with guidance that we don't make quick changes. Remain as you were last led to be. Whatever circumstances you've last been led into, make no changes unless you're really sure, beyond reasonable doubt, that it's the Lord who is really leading you to make the change. And also, when things get really tough, don't necessarily think that that means that you've been wrong in guidance in any area up to date, it might mean you were wrong it might not, but if there's an area of your life where you're following God's guidance and it's getting tough, if you're mistaken then the fact that it's getting so impossible to hang in there will actually be that which brings you back onto line, you think oh goodness no I've got this wrong let's correct this, but If God is leading you, the harder the way gets if it's the Lord leading you, the more you'll find that your faith will actually grow. So it is important to understand, all right, this principle of stay as you are. Don't make any changes in regards to guidance unless you're really sure that it's the Lord who's leading you to do it. So, for instance, let's say there's someone here thinking, right, I'm doing this job and uh, I think I might be being led into changing jobs, all right? don't change jobs whatever you do just because the opportunity is there. Stay in your old job, for instance, make no changes at all until you are sure that it's the Lord leading you to do so. I mean, think about it. Uh, Say, I mean, whatever job you're in, say here's a Christian in a job and all of a sudden, say he's in a firm or something and he's doing a job that's okay, middling money, fine, no real problem. But then out of the blue, He gets a chance to be transferred to Newcastle, and it's promotion, and the money gets big. It's promotion. Now, what would the world do? Jump at it. Oh, well, yeah, right, okay, no problem, got to get in there. Is that the way the Christian would do it? No. And I'll tell you why. The Christian would not want to change jobs merely because there's more money. That's greed. A Christian would not want to change jobs merely because it's promotion. That's pride the only reason a christian would ever want to change jobs is because the lord is saying change jobs so if even a chance of a lifetime if it comes to you out of the blue don't jump at it hang back and find out whether it's the lord arranging it as a step that he wants you to take or whether it's satan setting you up in order to deceive you and shipwreck you because after all you know i mean the lord might not want you to move to newcastle but he might. He might not want you to open a new office in Bongo Bongo land but he might. But the point is no jumping at what might be guidance. Stay as you are until you know it's guidance and test it with other people. Alright. That is the safe way to do it. So that's the stay as you are principle in regards to revelational guidance. But there's something else here that we've got to see as well. Is Elijah the brook has dried up. Now Elijah for the first time is feeling the pinch of the drought for himself. Because remember, what is the judgment on God's people? It's a drought. Was Elijah under God's judgment? No, he wasn't, because he was faithful to God. Elijah was right with God, the rest of Israel wasn't. But nevertheless, it was important that Elijah was able to identify with the people who were under judgment because they were the people that God was going to send him to. So therefore Elijah now sits there thirsty. The drought, the judgment on Israel is now starting to hit him. And it's starting to hit him because Elijah has got to be able to identify with the people that his ministry is going to be to. Go over into Hebrews the letter to the Hebrews and find chapter (coughs) 4. Chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 15 and 16, (coughs) and this is speaking about Jesus in his role as our great high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sinning. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now what that passage is talking about is the fact that Jesus is able because of the life he lived on this earth jesus is able to identify with us completely now then what is the result of that the result of that is that we can draw near to him with confidence what you've got here is quite simply you've got approachability because of identification and sympathy because Jesus has been through what we go through and even worse he can identify with us he sympathizes with us therefore we find him to be utterly approachable. And what's happening here in Elijah's life is that Elijah is learning to identify with the people that his ministry is going to be to because God is making him feel the pinch of the judgment as well. Elijah is realizing that he is as sinful as anyone else, that he's in the same boat as anyone else. You know, it's all part of God's dealings with him. Elijah, even though he's not under God's judgment like the rest of Israel, Elijah is not going to be allowed by God to live in the desert like some kind of king. He's going to be made to feel the pinch of that judgment. So that he is able to identify with the people that he's going to. Uh, Turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel in chapter 3. Again, Ezekiel, a prophet to Israel. Elijah is a prophet to Israel. And we're going to see here something that any prophet to God's people must understand and go through. In Ezekiel chapter 3... And we'll read verse 15. Now, what's happening here is that Ezekiel is being sent with God's word to Jewish exiles at a place called Tel Aviv, all right? Now, look at this. This is Ezekiel obviously writing. And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv, who dwelt by the river Kibar. Uh, This is uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 15. It says, And I came to the exiles at tel Aviv, who dwelt by the river Kibar. And I sat where they sat, overwhelmed among them, for seven days. Now, can you see what's happening here with Ezekiel? He is being sent to a group of people with a word from God. I.e., he is going to be God's representative to some people, all right? Now, when he gets there, he doesn't just put his boots on and dive in there with the word of the Lord. What he does is he sat there where they sat, overwhelmed amongst them for seven days. He didn't open his mouth. But what he did do, he sat with them until he was sharing their situation. Until he was sharing their suffering. Until he was identifying with the problems that they had. Now, can you see the important thing in there? Ezekiel doesn't just go in, right, okay, I've got a word from the Lord for you, guys. It's this, 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 and this. These people were in pain. These people were exiles. These people had problems. And Ezekiel made sure that he could identify them so that when he spoke God's word, he wasn't kind of speaking down at them from some kind of platform. He was on their level. He was one of them as he became a representative of God. To them, and this is vitally important, i.e., Ezekiel was approachable. Do you remember last week we saw Isaiah? What was it Isaiah had to go through? Do you remember chapters 1 to 5? Woe is everyone! Now, it's very difficult to approach someone who's like that, isn't it? In chapter 6, Isaiah gets dealt with, and what does he say? Woe is me. And can you see, Isaiah begins to identify with the people he's going to, realizing that he was in the same boat as they are. And it's vitally important. Jesus has shared our pain. Jesus has shared our weakness and our suffering. He became a human being. And it's vital that we share other peoples. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, the writer, said that true friendship begins when one person says to another, What? You too? Oh goodness, I thought I was the only one. That is where friendship actually begins and it's vitally important for Elijah. God's really showing him his sin and now Elijah is feeling the pinch of the drought. He's not under God's judgment because he's right with God but nevertheless the people he's being sent to are. So here Elijah with the brook drying up begins to feel the pinch of the judgment that was on the people he was being sent to. So Elijah could begin to identify with them. Elijah was now able to sympathize with the people that God was sending him to. And the thing about this identification, this sympathizing, this realizing that ultimately we're all in the same boat, what it does is it removes from us any trace of harshness or aloofness. Now it's absolutely vital that God deals with us in those two areas. Harshness with people and aloofness. Approachability I would say is one of the most important characteristics that the Lord wants to produce in us. Approachability. We all know what it's like when you've got people that, you know, they're kind of aloof. They're kind of, you know, sort of, you, you wouldn't feel you could just approach them. Because you wouldn't know how they're going to respond. They might even look down, Who, you know, who are you to approach me? You see that? Now, it's vital that the Lord delivers us from anything of that in us. And I'll tell you why. Because approachability, i.e. the opposite of aloofness and harshness, approachability is actually a byproduct of humility. Someone who has been truly humbled will be someone who is approachable. If you go to Luke, can have a look at the Apostle Peter. If you find Luke chapter 22 and we can see very clearly how how the Lord did this work in Peter. Because Peter was not a very approachable bloke. Find Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. Luke 22 and verse 31. Now the situation is that Jesus knows full well that Peter is going to be a leader of churches. Peter is going to be a leader of men. Peter is going to be a shepherd of sheep. All right, and uh, But there was an awful lot in Peter that had to be dealt with. And uh, one of the biggest characteristics of someone like Peter is that People like Peter the upfront out there front line type person is that the great danger for them is to end up looking down on people who aren't like that all right now just look what Jesus says to him he says Simon Simon I Peter he was Simon Peter Simon Simon behold Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. And he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you three times deny that you know me. Now, the point is that what Jesus is pointing, the important thing here is this verse, it says, And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren now that word strengthen in the Greek that's all talking about being a shepherd pastoring and Jesus is looking ahead to the time when Peter is going to be a leader of men a leader in the church but Jesus knows full well that Peter is not ready yet and so what he's saying to Peter is Satan is going to sort you out Peter Alright, you know, you're really going to be dealt with. You don't have the proper measure of yourself, Peter. You're cocky. You're sincere, but you're self-reliant. And it is no good having a leader of people who is like that. A successful Christian can never be a good leader to sinners because after all a successful Christian is someone who hasn't got the true assessment of themselves and so Jesus said your leadership is in the future Satan's got to deal with you first Peter only then when you've turned again when you've repented when you've got the full measure of yourself only then are you going to be able to be a leader of other people now go to John 21 and see the other end of this episode John 21 And verse 15 now this is after you remember peter denied jesus even after jesus was saying peter you're not ready yet peter was saying oh i'm going to die for you i'm going to do this that, and the other and that was exactly the problem that peter had you see he thought he was a success now then this is after peter has betrayed jesus peter has been broken and now Jesus is revealing himself to Peter having been raised from the dead 3 from verse 15 when they had finished breakfast Jesus said to Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these he said to him yes Lord you know that I love you and Jesus said to him feed my lambs and that word is pastor pastor be an elder All right. you know be a leader pastor my lambs. A second time he said to him Simon son of John do you love me? he said to him yes Lord you know that I love you and he said to him tend my sheep, I pastor my sheep he said to him the third time Simon son of John do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time do you love me and he said to him Lord you know everything you know that I love you Jesus said to him feed my sheep, pastor my sheep. Now what is Jesus doing here? Peter was a cocky, successful, self-reliant disciple who had to be dealt with, shown the true measure of himself. This the Lord arranged by handing him over to Satan. Satan set him up and Peter ended up denying Jesus three times. Peter is now a broken man. Now here, Jesus is saying, you're ready now to be a pastor. You're ready now. And look how Jesus does it. Three times he says, do you love me? Now, why did Jesus say, do you love me three times? Because Peter, a few weeks ago, had denied him three times. Jesus is gently, lovingly, as he appoints Peter to be a leader of God's people, here Jesus reminds him of his own utter, total failure. Do you see the point? Peter is now an approachable, sympathetic leader of God's people. Why? Because he'd failed himself. If Peter had not been dealt with by God in this way, his leadership would have been a success story organizing mere plebs. That would have been Peter, he'd have been the faithful one, the successful one, and he'd always be, one. well I love these other people but why can't they get it right? You see? But Peter's been dealt with, he knows that he is a failure as well. Can you see how important that is. So therefore Peter was made approachable. Why? Because he was a failure as well. Now I don't know about you, I know I'm a failure. In order to feel I can approach someone I can only feel safe if I know that they know that they are as well. If they think they're a success and I'm some great failure, that's not exactly the circumstances where you're going to turn to someone, is it? Because they might patronize you. Do you see the point? So therefore Elijah here is being put in the same boat as the people who his ministry was going to actually be to. And you see it in Elijah, the pinch of the drought starts to touch him. He can now identify with the people that God has sent him to. We've seen it in Isaiah, woe is me. In Ezekiel, I sat where they sat, overwhelmed among them, seven days. Uh, And now we've seen it in Peter. And it is vitally important. Elijah is here being made approachable by being made to realize that he is equally the failure of the people that he is actually going to minister to. And that's tremendously important. Never must anyone lead from a position of success, I've arrived, because no one has arrived. And that does nothing to help the people looking up to you. All right. The point is, the truth is we are all failures and good leaders are men who have tasted of their own failure to the bitter dregs. Only then are they fit to really be a help to other people in their failures. So therefore, that's why I say that approachability is a byproduct of humility. Aloof people who are kind of up there and you don't feel you can approach them, that's because they do not have the true measure of themselves. They are arrogant, they are aloof, they are superior god needs to bring each one of us right down off that you know that you know thing if that's where we're there and to really show us the truth about ourselves that will humble us that will make us approach make us approachable and if people come to us sharing failures and sins then they'll know that they've got the ear of someone who knows all about that because they've been through it themselves so there we have elijah just sitting there waiting on the Lord, all right? The water dried up, okay? Let's move on to verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Then the word of the Lord came to him. And uh, now, do you remember, back in verse 2, chapter 17, verse 2, what did we read? The word of the Lord came to him. Depart and hide yourself. Now the word of the Lord comes to him again. And we have another principle of guidance. And it's quite simply this, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Notice, he wasn't running around like a scalded cat, looking for it. Do you see the difference there? When it comes to guidance, who is doing the guiding? The Lord. Therefore, who is the onus on? The Lord. And that's a terrifically relieving thing to know, that when it comes to guidance, the onus is on the Lord, not on us. And sometimes you meet Christians who are frantically trying to find out God's will. They are frantic about it. There is no need to be frantic about finding out God's will. What we need to know, as long as we genuinely have the ear open, as long as we are genuinely willing to be obedient to whatever the guidance is assuming that we are open to the lord to receive guidance then believe me the guidance will come to you and uh, you know i've known christians virtually have nervous breakdowns over this thing about god's guidance i know in, in past years i've been in a dreadful state regarding god's guidance Oh, am I gonna miss it? Some of this great feeling, it's up to me, and if I'm not in the right place at the right time, I'll miss God's guidance. Well, that begs the question, so how do you get the guidance to know which place you're supposed to be at to get the guidance? And I tied myself up in knots. And it was absolutely ridiculous. And it was because I hadn't realized this simple principle, that the word of the Lord will come to you. So therefore, when it comes to matters of guidance, the key to it is this relax just relax just get shot of that burden any kind of oh how am i going to know god's guidance oh what happens if i miss it get shot of that that is an insult on the lord is the lord able to make himself clear or not my experience has been that he is and the bible says that he is so get shot of that burden completely when it comes to guidance be cool man i mean the hippies were right about that (laughs) be cool you can be laid back and relaxed When it comes to the question of God's guidance. Guidance will come to you. In whatever way, it could be any one of a million ways. But the point is, the onus for leading you is on the Lord. And you can trust him to get through. Okay, so that's good to know. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, alright? Okay, he hung in there in the last place he was led to. He made no changes at all until the guidance clearly came. But when the guidance did come the lord came to elijah elijah wasn't freaking out all over the place trying to get the next bit of guidance all right he was just relaxed and casual about it right let's see where this uh, guidance was to uh verse verse nine uh the word of the lord came to him and then verse nine and this is what the lord said arise go to zarephath which belongs to zidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Right, okay, that's the uh, that's the next set of guidance, that is. He was led to Zarephath, the Lord said there's a place called Zarephath, a town, it's in the country of Zidon, and I want you to go there because you're going to be fed by a widow. Now, I mean, it was possibly run up on a raven, I don't know. But here, he's being led to Zarephath in, in, in Zion to be fed by a widow. Now, there, there are loads of things. This trip to Zarephath that he makes, we're going to be on this for a few studies because there is so much in there, all right. But uh, just, just for the time being, we're going to sort of deal with uh, a few things. First of all, Zarephath. Why is he sent to Zarephath? We've seen why he was sent to Cherith, all right. Well, Zarephath means a place of refining it means a refinery <laughs> again can you see the significance of the, the typology in the Old Testament you see the thing is that uh, I mean certainly Brooke Cherith would have been what you might call a crisis experience a very definite coming through to a realization of his death that he you know that he's dying to himself and I know for me uh, you know, that, that, that when eventually the revelation of my oneness with Jesus came through, when I realized that I was dead with Him on the cross already, you know, I mean, there was I like, desperately trying to die, and I got the revelation that I was dead it changed my life and that I was raised up with Jesus, and that he and I were one. That revelation changed me as profoundly as my conversion changed me. Alright, and it, there was a very definite, I mean, it worked up over years but came to a very definite crisis point. But the thing we've got to realise as well is that God may indeed have a crisis point here and there, but the whole process of God dealing with us and sanctifying us, that goes on for the rest of our lives that always continues so we can't say that because elijah right he's done his brook cherith this guy is now dead to himself man it doesn't work like that yes a very definite something has happened in him that has changed him but the next place he goes to is refinery because god's dealings with us never ever stop god is always dealing with our sins and will be until the day that we die so he's going to a place meaning a place of refining, refinery. And what does refine mean? If you refine something, you make it free from impurities. Alright? That's what it means. So obviously, God's still got a lot of work to do here in Elijah. Go to James. Go to James. <coughs> James and chapter 1. James is after the letter to the Hebrews. James chapter 1 and verse 4 we'll read uh, verse 2 and 3 and it says count it all joy my brethren when you meet various trials and uh, that word trials there pirasmos you know means difficulties for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and that word testing is the idea of refining precious metals uh, verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life. Again, that word test. In the ancient world you tested metals to get all the impurities out of them. Uh, Go over into 1 Peter. Old Peter knew all about this, didn't he? 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 he says in this you rejoice having just been speaking about their salvation in this you rejoice though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith more precious than gold which though perishable is tested by fire may redound to praise and glory and honor blah 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 so there Peter and James are talking about the fact that God tests us in much the same way that a metal worker or a jeweller will test various uh, metals that he's working with. And the whole point about this testing of the furnace, the furnace, is that all the impurities, I mean, say you've got a lump of gold there. Now, some of it is, in, is gold and some of it is not, all right. It's full of dross. So you chuck it in the old crucible and you bubble it up. And all the impurities, all the dross, they bubble up to the top and then it can be skimmed off. And the point is that through that testing, what you've got, when it comes down to, to jewelers, you've got more gold, less dross. When it comes down to us, what you've got is more Jesus and less us. Do you remember? That's the whole point he must increase that I, sorry, I must decrease so that he must increase. And so the point is that as, as Elijah is now led to Zarephath, further things are going to happen to him which are designed for one purpose, to get all his sin up, you know, to, to get all the dross up so it can be dealt with so that there is less of Elijah and more of the Lord in him. So what we're st- seeing here is still the Lord reducing Elijah To nothing remember some time ago we did a study on that simply called nothing we saw that what God uses he first reduces to nothing and here we are seeing it in a very powerful way that God is doing this to Elijah as well so therefore off he goes to Zarephath all right and uh, you know called a widow there to feed him now just just chalk up at this moment that Zarephath was outside of Israel it was a Gentile town So Elijah is actually being taken outside of Israel completely into the Gentile territories. Now, the main point I want to make about that is this. You remember that last time I raised the question as to um, what would have happened today uh, to Elijah um, having made such a declaration as to Ahab. And I said that I think the chances are that he would have been launched into international ministry, wouldn't he? You know, all the big conference tours and stuff like that. Uh, now, God knows how to deal with people properly. And uh, so God guides him not to an international preaching tour. God guides him, first of all, to Brook Cherith, absolutely his Todd, Death to Self. And uh, now God is leading him into Gentile territory to be looked after by a Gentile widow. So we've gone to being fed uh, from ravens to being fed by a Gentile widow. And this widow, as we're going to see, had a son. Now, after Elijah's great declaration to Ahab and, and, and the real showing forth that he was indeed the man of the moment, after all that, my goodness, what a down! I mean, you might call it almost the ultimate come down. On his Todd being fed by ravens, now out of Israel altogether to the Gentiles to be fed by a widow. And that basically what's happening here is that all the while Elijah is being humbled into the dust. And the reason, and God wants to do that with us, not just Elijah, with us as well. And the reason that God wants to humble us into the dust is simply to make us realise that that is exactly what we are. Dust. It's exactly what the Bible says. We were made from the dust of the ground. It's been said, uh, quite truthfully, that very best we are specks of dust with an attitude problem. And I think, you know, when you understand that, You know, God has got to deal with that attitude problem. So, therefore, God's got to show us exactly what we are. We are mere dust. We are nothing before the Lord. He is everything. We are nothing. And we need this humbling. Now, there are three things just to home in on here. With what is Elijah? going to be occupying himself for a while from this moment onwards remember he's gone to Zarephath. Well, or we're going to see that next time and the widow meets him there and she's got a son all right now with what is Elijah going to be occupying himself with on a practical level is he going to be preaching to crowds well isn't that what prophets do uh, is, is he going to be jet-setting across the world to speak at international conferences uh, is he going to be advising big leaders Uh, Will he be giving interviews to the Christian press and the media? Answer no. He's going to be concerned now with things like washing up, collecting firewood, doing the shopping, or whatever the equivalent was 3,000 years ago, tucking a little boy up at night, putting him to bed and telling him stories, and uh, kind of just being a witness to Gentiles in the back of beyond. Now, there's a word that fits here, and the word is meniality absolute meniality God is now setting Elijah onto the real what I would call menial day-to-day execution of boring old life and believe you me and let's not get ourselves life day-to-day is a bit boring I mean you know do you still enjoy cleaning your teeth I don't hate it Must count how many times I've cleaned it. Going to the toilet—what a terrible chore! All the having to wash—you know, keeping an eye on the armpits if you want to keep friends. You see what I mean? Life is day-to-day meniality. Now, it doesn't mean there isn't excitement in life, especially following the Lord. There is, but the point is that we need to realize that basically much of life boils down to the execution of boring old day-to-day life and that is what elijah is going to be occupied with now sheer meniality and i i i can't emphasize too much how important i personally think this is uh you know sort of like where would someone in elijah's position have gone to next international ministry where has he gone to here? Absolute, you know, unknownness and meniality. And that is tremendously important because no one must be in an ivory tower. And I think especially leaders. And extra especially leaders with an upfront ministry, be it teaching, evangelism or whatever. <laughs> you see, the thing about menial day-to-day tasks and God is really just homing in. He's just keeping Elijah absolutely menial now for a spell. Nothing special at all. Nothing exciting particularly at all. Just menial day-to-day life. Ordinary service, all right? And, um, but the thing is that it it keeps people's feet on the ground. Uh, The thing about menial jobs is that it accentuates your plebhood, you know, yeah, I mean, it's the old thing about, you know, can you really imagine the queen cleaning her teeth in the morning and doing her ablutions in general? But you know she does. Of course she does. She's a human being. Can you see? There's something about nitty-gritty going to Sainsbury's and, you know, stuff like that. It, it just kind it reminds you of your pleb. And that any idea you've got that you're special is purely an illusion that you have to, you know, that you have got about yourself. If you don't clean your teeth, your teeth will fall out like anyone else's. Then you see, there is nothing special about you, there is nothing special about me. And day-to-day meniality can do a terrific work in our lives of keeping our feet on the ground. I mean, for instance, I, mean, I do not like the setup, uh, which you do get a lot. Uh, I, but I, I don't like the setup in churches where the leaders, the elders, the Bible teachers—they they get their lawns mowed by the flock. Uh, they 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 get their their cars cleaned by their minions. And the reason for, I, mean, I mean, it's not that they're telling them to, but like the you know, like the plebs turn up and you know, I'm going to wash your car today because you're far too busy to worry about something like that. Can you see? Now the reason that I don't like that is is because the Minions, sadly, end up thinking that their leaders are too busy with important things to do things like clean their car, mow the lawn, etc, etc. So therefore they've got to do it because they've got to make sure their leaders have got plenty of time for the important stuff. Now I've got a question. What important stuff? What's so important that you can't clean your car? Well, <laughs> i'm lucky because blinder likes cleaning house i mean you know bad example but (laughs) (laughs) laughter from the kitchen but i mean the thing is can you see the point that i think it is dangerous when you get churches where the elders are never doing their own menial tasks the menial tasks are being done for them by others because it's considered that the elders they've got more important things to be thinking of than doing their own menial tasks now i think that is wrong i go further than not only should leaders be doing their own menial tasks I mean why should someone else do it for them but leaders ought to like every other christian make sure that they're doing other people's menial tasks for them as well and I mean this is <coughs> this is why I am actually on our work parties I mean it's like when we've got a situation where someone needs a bit of practical help you know houses decorated or whatever you name it moving or whatever Okay, I make sure that I'm on those work parties. I mean, I actually enjoy it. I mean, I'm not there because I think this is a great sacrifice and it's good for my soul because it's keeping my feet on the ground. I actually find that I enjoy doing it. I mean, you know, sort of like often you won't get better fellowship than when you're working all together. It's brilliant. I love it. And the thing is that if it ever gets to the point where I haven't got the time to be on our work parties, then for heaven's sake, come and see me and say, well, you know, what on earth is so important? that you're up to, that you can't make work parties anymore. I mean, it's not to say that one day there won't be a work party and as a one-off I'll be tied up with something else. But can you see the point? This great danger of leaders rising above meniality so that the meniality of their life is taken care of by other people. I think that is very unfortunate. I think, you know, leaders, not only must they be doing their own menial, you know, menial tasks, but they ought to be making sure that they're doing plenty of other people's menial tasks as well. Otherwise, you get airs and graces, and that is very dangerous for leaders to get. And, I mean, this is why, by and large, I am not keen on what you call the christian preaching circuit today and all all the big meetings and all the rallies and the reason that i'm not keen on it is because of the way it works and the way it works today is very basically and simply this you get someone who's used by god and and they plant and lead a church or maybe they plant and lead churches so it ends up evidently that god is using them now what tends to happen then is that they get fairly well known because God has used them and I've got no problem with the fact that God has used them but they tend to get well known. So what tends to happen then is that lots of other people think well God used you to do all that, uh, you know, you ought to spread what you've learned all over the place. So what you then do is you have a little ministry team and you pull off all the cream of the leaders of those churches and you create your own ministry team and from that point onwards you leave other people to lead those churches and you go off on your national, you know, international thing purely teaching other leaders how to plant churches and suddenly you no longer have any church life at all because you're never with the plebs anymore, are you? You're now in a situation where you're only relating to other leaders and one of the most uh, dodgy things happening today on the Christian scene is this ridiculous emphasis of leaders relating to each other all the time. Many leaders today never spend time with anyone except other leaders, and I think that is dangerous. I think they're becoming an elite. You know, you end up with illusions about yourself. You know, delusions of grandeur, even. And the tragedy is that then, the only time that such leaders interact with the plebs is to preach at them, teach them, cast demons out of them, rebuke them, uh, or just stare at them from the platform where they're all sitting up there like a bunch of lemon drops. Can you see? And, and there's no more interaction with the pledge. And that, I think, is there you have leaders who have forgotten that they're plebs as well. And, uh, you know, know, so that the day that I'm expecting other people to come and do my menial tasks because I'm too taken up with more important spiritual things, that's the day to just come and have a little word in my cloth-like, isn't it? You know, Because that means I'm getting airs and graces. And, you know, may God deliver any of us from getting airs and graces. We're, We're dust. And the menial day-to-day tasks are so good for us. And so that is why, rather than being launched into an international ministry, Elijah is here, launched out into Zarephath, to take care of a widow and her son, and to do washing up and things like that. Brilliant. Okay. Now then, the second thing, that's the first thing, meniality. The second thing, Um, here's Elijah, he's been sent off, he's going to be looked after by a Gentile widow and her son. What do you reckon about the rumors? That started going round about Elijah, hey? What do you think the tittle-tattle has made of this? Is Elijah moving in with a widow? What on earth would the rumours have been? What on earth would have his fellow Jews been whispering about Elijah behind his back? Now there were three main things that were wrong his situation as far as the Jews were concerned. In fact, there were three things about this that Elijah himself would have found it very hard to swallow, but swallow them, he had to. He was being looked after by a Gentile. Now that was tough for a Jew to swallow. He was being looked after by a Gentile woman, and that was even tougher for a proud Jew to accept. Uh, but thirdly he was being looked after by a gentile woman who was a widow the lowest of the low so Elijah is having rumours flying round about in there as he's moved in with someone so he's he's gone off the rails in that area that we don't mention because we're religious people right? but not only that he's not done it with someone who's respectable even he's done it with a gentile woman who's a widow and that would have made it even more unforgivable and my goodness can you imagine what the grapevine back in Israel was making of this C.H. Spurgeon was absolutely right when he said a rumor gets halfway around the world before truth has got its boots on and that is absolutely true and it is never truer than amongst God's people who seems to be even worse at that sort of stuff than unbelievers now we can see here I think that Elijah died to his reputation as a prophet. Because when he appeared to Ahab, thus saith the Lord, oh yes, here's the man at the moment, now he's gone off and he's moved in with this Gentile woman. Obviously, it goes without saying there is no impropriety going on here at all. Purity Peoples, you know, the rumors of Purity Peoples' own dirty minds. But can you see that now he's gone off the rails? Oh, so sad. His ministry started so well. Look what he's doing now. Uh, you know, can you see? Elijah is here dying to his reputation as a prophet. Notice. He'd only been a prophet, really, in any public way for a few weeks, hadn't he? So, I mean, God didn't let him glow in that for very long at all, did he? And he thought that Elijah, oh, well, I got off to quite a good start there. You know, I thought I handled Ahab quite well. Can you see the bashing that is coming his way now, you know, for anything like that? So, Elijah is dying to his reputation as a prophet here. In fact, he's dying to any reputation he might have ever had about anything. Full stop. I get, just imagine, what were the backbiters whispering? About him here. And of course, what we've got to realise is, of course, what people think doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what God thinks. Am I in His will? Am I walking in the way in which He is leading? Do you remember when Jesus had a chat with the Samaritan woman who was standing by the well? Let's actually have a look at that. Go to Matthew 10, we'll actually see this. Jesus didn't give a monkey's. Matthew chapter 10 I mean obviously you don't cause unnecessary offence but when you're in God's will it doesn't matter what people think Matthew chapter 10 let's read verse 24 the actual thing do you remember when Jesus was talking to the woman by the well and disciples came up after us all what are you doing Lord because the Jews didn't have anything to do with Samaritans let alone a Jewish man certainly didn't talk to a Samaritan woman on his own well Jesus did alright and uh, you know people would have slated him for it and in Matthew 10 verse 24 look what Jesus says here a disciple is not above his teacher nor is a servant above his master it is enough for the for the disciples to be like the teacher and for the servant to be like his master if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul how much more will they malign those of his household? so what Jesus is saying here is look lads you know what they said about me well I'm the master I'm the master they're going to say a lot worse things about you my disciples So. There's a promise, isn't there, to claim. Lord, we just claim this promise, you see. And I mean, can you see, it's so vital that we break free, that, that, that we get delivered from the bondage to what other people think. Because worrying about what other people think, it is our pride. It is our pride. And anything that wounds our pride, anything that dents our precious egos, is good for us. It is exceedingly good for us. Remember, humbled into the dust. That's what this is all about for Elijah. He is being humbled into the dust. And you know, his pride is getting a bashing, his ego is shrivelling at a very fast rate here. But that's great. Anything that humbles us is good for us. I know for myself, there isn't much that I haven't been called yet. You know, I, I mean, you name it, I've been called it. There must be things I haven't been called. but I'll only know when I hear I mean it's like for instance you know once when a minister sort of like you know rattled down the phone at me that I was cancer and he didn't want me near his wife or children alright I thought cancer that's a new one I'd never have thought of that can you see so yeah there's loads of you know stuff I haven't been called but I won't know what it is until I actually hear it the point is that if you really follow the Lord if they called Jesus Beelzebub then what worse stuff are they going to come out with against us who follow him. So when it comes to what people think, it doesn't matter. You know, any interest in reputation good name, spiritual standing, forget it, <laughs> forget it. You can't have the Lord in his fullness and that as well. It doesn't matter. It's one or the other, as Elijah is learning here. So, we've seen, firstly, meniality. He's gone to Zarephath, It's menial. It's boring. Day-to-day life. Elijah, keep your feet on the ground. No heirs and graces. An absolute loss of reputation, all right? A, a Jewish prophet being looked after by a Gentile widow, how the tongues were going, alright. So, thirdly, here, what have we got? Ultimately, Elijah's charge, his mission, is going to be to a nation, alright. But here, here, what is his concern? Is it a nation? No, it's a defenseless widow and her son. Her son. Elijah is here concerning himself with what I'm going to call the little people. The little people, the Diddy men. Alright. And Elijah was here being taught that he must always be available for the individual. Not just crowds, not just big leaders, but Elijah had to be available for the little people. And the thing above all else that Elijah learns in this is that he is a little people as well. Because there is no such thing as big people in God's eyes. There are just people. And Elijah, who is going to end up speaking to a nation, here is taught to concern himself, not with nations, but with individuals. Probably the people who mattered least to anyone else. And they are now, this widow and her son, they are now Elijah's only thought. Because they are the ones to whom he is now sent. And what Elijah is learning is that his ministry is ultimately to the little people, or it's to absolutely no one. Because there are only little people. There are no big people. We are all specks of dust. Now, one of the things that I found out, and it's one of the tragedies on the Christian scene today, is that you can't get to our big boys in this country. There have been times when I've needed to try, purely for research purposes, purely clarifying various things. And you can't do it. I've had people on the phone who have been asking me, you know, this, that and the other and so and so and I've read in his magazine, blah, blah, blah and they're all in a was, and so I think, well, I'll phone him, I'll clarify the situation, that's no problem. You can't get to them. Their secretaries, because that's the only person you'll get, a secretary, they are experts at making sure that you never get to the big man himself. You only deal with their underlings. You never deal with them. I was interested some time ago, uh, you know, someone who Robert knows um, suddenly reached the point where Robert realized that this, this person, who's a minister, or horrible word, the actual word in Greek is servant, but suddenly Robert never got a phone call from him personally, only from his minions passing on a message, you see. Now I think that stinks that is like executives of big corporations do you see what I mean? and it is so wrong because these are big leaders and you cannot, you cannot get to them and, and it's, it's, just, it's just crazy, it's just crazy they concern themselves with crowds and nations they're not concerned about individuals like you and I and that is so tragic because here we're seeing that that is the one lesson that God is underlining here in Elijah's heart and uh, you see the thing is you can't love a crowd it is not possible to love a crowd you can only love individuals that is all you can do you can only love individuals and Elijah even though he was being prepared to be a man who was going to deal with a nation he nevertheless knew that any corporate mass of people is made up of individuals and it was those individuals that Elijah cared about and it was those individuals that he was available for and we're gonna see that as Elijah moved into the situation with this gentile widow and with her son that he brought the power of God into that little family as lovingly, as gently as kind of and he was thrilled with it as much as later on when we're going to see him bringing it to a whole nation and it is so important that we realize that today we 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 sadly do have a big people little people set up in the churches and it's the very opposite to what the bible teaches it's the very opposite to the way that the lord himself thinks and it's the very opposite to the way that he wants to see us living, being. He wants to see us characterised by love for individuals. Never getting so high that individuals don't matter anymore. The moment that you're not relating on the level of just ordinary plebs together, then no longer is the spirit of Jesus being revealed in you. Because Jesus is not an elitist. He's not a superior person. He came right down in the midst of us. He became a human being. He didn't decide when he set the plan of salvation into action. He didn't decide to come down as God and set the human race right. He decided to come down as God who had become a man and to set it right from the inside. Not from the outside, not from on high. He came into the situation amongst us. And today, sadly, leadership is from the front from the top they're up there the plebs are down here and it is the exact opposite of the character of Jesus and as I say God is dealing with Elijah here so that Elijah never ever turns into a big man he was certainly concerned with big things because that was God's will for him but never, never, never did Elijah turn into a big man he was always available he was as content preaching to thousands, as he was spending time with a Gentile widow and her son, looking after her. And that is what the Lord wants to be able to do in us. As I said earlier on, the way that leadership works today, you kind of, you know, leaders plant churches, you get a kind of a pyramid thing, churches under them, then the, the top of the pyramid slices off, and there go the leaders. But what you find is that from then on, they're only ever relating to other leaders and doing like big meetings and stuff like that. So they're never in relationship again in their own church to which they are accountable. Can you see? And and it's such a tragedy that that happens because, I mean, every church should have leaders. And the point is, even if those leaders find that God has a ministry for them beyond their own personal church, the point is, first and foremost, they are leaders in their own fellowship. And they are accountable to their own fellowship. And it's that accountability whereby their home fellowship makes sure that they never forget that they're just one of the lads. You see, keep their feet on the ground. You know, if they need humbling, they'll humble them. And it's so important to realize that. So here, what have we seen? Elijah, he's now sent into a situation of sheer meniality. He's sent into a situation of total loss of reputation. And he's sent into a situation to show him that the world is made up of millions and millions of little people, each individually loved by the Lord. Therefore, each must be individually loved by Elijah and also the realisation that Elijah can never become a big man because the only people who exist are little people, the only big man is the Lord and so given that Elijah is learning that he's a little person he will always, only, ever relate to little people he will never for one moment believe that there's anything special about him and we must make sure that we never ever lose that understanding that each one of us here, we are little people. Can you see? Everyone is a little person. And the moment that we think we're something big and that other people are something little, then we've lost the love of God shed abroad in, in, in our hearts by faith and we're going off onto some kind of ego trip. Let's make sure that we are always available for the little people because we are little people as well. Right, next time we'll move on and we'll see his stay with the widow uh, in a little bit more detail.